Hey everyone and welcome back. The following is a conversation with Jeremy Berkowitz, who has been representing the interests of the families that own the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem. It's one of my favorite hotels in the country, and not just because of its aesthetic beauty, it has this incredible courtyard that I urge anyone to, to go visit, but also because of its really rich history. Tony Blair, about 10 years ago, rented out, I think, an entire wing of the hotel when he was um, pursuing a specific peace proposal here. Tony Blair being the uh, former prime minister of the UK. This was when, uh, during his time in the, uh, in the quartet. And, I mean, he, he joins a list of guests, including people like Winston Churchill, Lawrence of Arabia, Bob Dylan, Giorgio Armani... I think Jeremy in our conversation mentioned Sting and Natalie Portman. I mean, th these are the kinds of people that uh, stay, have stayed in this hotel when they come visit Israel. So, you know, the stories that this, that the walls of this place can tell. Um, now our conversation was a bit short. I wish I had more time with Jeremy and I'm sure there's a million more stories he can share that he, um, he probably chooses not to <laughs> for obvious reasons. But uh, I hope you enjoy. And as always, if you haven't, please subscribe to the podcast. There's many more cool conversations to come. And if you enjoy the work also, and if you're already a subscriber, please uh, don't mind. I don't mind, of course, if you share this with your with your friends and whoever you uh, you talk to. All right. Enjoy. Let's get into it. Yeah, um, whatever you want. Where are you from, Jeremy? I'm from Manchester in uh, England. Uh, when did you move to Israel? When I was 26, so that's uh, approximately 82. 80 March, March 82, actually. And what, what did the country look like then? Um, well, uh, underdeveloped. Um, what do you mean by that? Like, you give me some flavor. Uh, you couldn't buy a car. What? Or if you could buy a car, you waited a long time. <laughs> and you were given a choice... Uh, this is an actual, an actual uh, example of my wife wanted to buy a car just before we got married, and um, we went to the various showrooms. There were no cars to buy at the time. Uh, Ford had a car. It was a Ford Sierra, in a, a very unfortunate coloured green, <laughs> and we didn't like the car or the colour. And the guy said, "Well, that's what we have for the next three months." The thing was, her her tax exemption as an Olah Hadasha, as a new, uh, a new immigrant, immigrant yeah. uh, only lasted mm -hmm. for three months because once she married me, she she would join my rights and I already had a car. So if she was going to buy a car without tax, which was a massive saving of 100%, she had to buy the car within three months. So that was the only car that you could buy. So, we so ended up with you a had a car? I already had a car, yeah. Okay. Which, Did uh, you have that Ford piece of shit, or you had something else? No, I had an Opel Ascona, which was fine. Okay. We didn't really want that Ford. And, uh, yeah, but we had to buy it. In other words, there wasn't an option. That was the sort of decision that you had to make. Amazing. Uh, you know, and, and she never had a phone uh, in where she lived. My, my uh, you fiance mean a, at the time. A landline. 1982, she didn't have a landline, no. And uh, wow. I had. Uh, so it was... Uh, you know, it was a case of the economics being way behind what I was used to in England. 
did you uh, did you move with your family or you moved by yourself uh, i moved by myself but bits of my family had already come some came afterwards some came before okay there was an incident when i had my car which i'd bought in uh, in belgium and then brought actually drove it over and i wanted to install air conditioning and uh, there was no one in Jerusalem who installed air conditioning in cars. There was no such thing. Your car had no air conditioning? No, no, most cars didn't have air conditioning. In this country? In this country. In oh, my God. So I'm giving you concrete examples. <laughs> and I drove over to Petar Tikva near Tel Aviv to Alex Air Conditioning. And I said, I'd like to install air conditioning by Opel Ascona. And they said, where do you live? I said, Jerusalem. They said, well, we're not doing it. You don't need air conditioning in Jerusalem. <laughs> I said, well... You may think I don't need it. I think I do. Yeah. I had to argue with them before they agreed to put it in. <laughs> I was one of the few people who had air conditioning in a car in Jerusalem. <laughs> to say nothing about elevators if you lived on the third floor or air conditioning in houses, which very few people had. Yeah, yeah. coffee's uh, here. Yeah, we'll just stop. Thank you very much. Come in. Thank you. Thank That's you. Great. perfect and tell Rana the, the color you. is absolutely perfect and so are you thank you very much thank you, sir. all right bye um so uh, that right. was so that was the air conditioning in a house or in an apartment was most unusual if wow. you were very wealthy or you lived on a top floor uh, you know south facing uh, under certain conditions somebody may have what was the argument of the of the air conditioning guy for the car saying the argument against he, i mean you're said, saying he said I'm, you just don't need it it's but a waste of your money he was trying to tell me i'm wasting my money right to spend what in those days was a thousand dollars which in today's money is five thousand or seven thousand dollars right for something that you're never going to need but or switch on you and i both know jews and we're not in the habit of turning down money what what that's a very strange story. Uh, not such a strange story. That's the wonderful thing about Israelis, that oh. you can get some exceptionally honest and caring and empathetic, if that's the word, Israelis, who really, really don't want you to waste your money, who are amazing. And you can get, of course, the other side. I always find Israel is, a, is an example of extremes. There's yeah. exceptionally good people and some exceptionally awful people. Right. Of course, they're all middle, but I come from... A place, uh, England, Britain, where everything was moderate. It was never that cold. It was never that hot. It was never that loud. It was never that quiet. It was never that anything. It well, was just very moderate and temperate, uh, as the British temperament is. And you come to the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and the food's hotter and more spicy, and the weather's hotter and colder, and, and the people are more emotional. And it, it's not just the weather which changes here. Yeah. Everything about... Israel, and I suppose Arab countries, although I haven't spent any serious amount of time there, is more emotional and more extreme. Right. It's more personal as well. More personal. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. More personal. You, you can actually feel the essence of the person. Even if, it's a, even if it's a stranger, you can actually feel that what that person's all about, their soul. Yeah, they bear their souls. Yeah. I mean, basically, you ask someone here how they are, and they tell you. And uh, in England, the last thing they will do is tell you. You have to ask, but no one's mm. ever going to tell you how they are. Mm. And uh, it's something that I've uh, learnt while I'm here. That you, you know, people. We know the old joke about you know what do you earn? You know, Israelis have got no problem to say so. What, what's your salary? Right. Or in the, in the old days, it's actually much better now. But in the bank, 
when you went when there were still bank tellers and bank clerks and banks actually were open that you could speak to someone you would go in in 1982 when i came and the clerk would shout your balance over <laughs> you know over the counter so that was it in fact i have a story of going into the army in a similar vein i uh, i uh, had the basic medical tests yeah and uh, i received a pretty low mark which surprised me really surprised me because i thought i'd get a very good mark i had a small cartilage operation i knew i'd lose a few points for that but apart from that i was fit and i got less than 50 i can't remember what it was but it was not i think it was borderline cruddy but i don't remember exactly so that disqualified you from from uh, being in a combat yeah, unit i don't know if it, yeah basically disqualified from a combat unit and uh, that was the beginning of a whole you know, series of decisions which happened as to why that happened, and that's the story. But when I was actually informed of this, they called my... We were sitting in a waiting room after the medical test, and the woman behind said, uh, Jimmy? No one moved. <laughs> Grommy? No one moved. I genuinely had no idea who they were talking about. <laughs> and uh, I think there was a... Garmy. <laughs> And finally, I forget what the the one that lit my uh, pipe was, which was probably something like grumpy. But I said, do you mean Jeremy? Yes. Okay, so I go there. She says, 43, terrible. That's where she says loud. There's 50 people in the room, including two people I knew. And of course, I go there. She gives me a piece of paper. I said, why 43? She goes, I don't know. Look, there's numbers written here. And you have, I don't know if you ever had this, but there's a certain CFIM clauses, mm -hmm. like 42, 47, 144. In other words, you lost the 20 points because of 144. Okay. So I said, I said to her, what's 144? I mean, I didn't know about this. I thought I was healthy. I said, I'm not sure that I can make it to the door out of here. Am I going to fall over and have a heart attack? Right. I'd like to know, please. Right. She goes, I don't know, go to a doctor. <laughs> but the, the idea of, and of course, this story contingent is actually very amusing. Right. But, but the, the, um, the point was, that was the way people spoke. They told you if you had an overdraft, the whole bank had to hear about yeah. it. If you had a medical problem, which I didn't know I had, it turns out I didn't, but that's not the point. She's had no bones about letting everybody know about it. <laughs> so uh, we've come a long way. I mean, it's well, come so a long way. I, I just wanted to say that it's so interesting how, I mean, you said 82, right? So it's been 41 yeah. years since you arrived. And the country has developed so much. And yet the people, the essence is still very, very similar. You know, we, we um, all have these encounters with bureaucracy in Israel and it's everywhere. I, I don't it's, know if it's just bureaucracy. I think it's people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure. I will tell you a, a little story. When I was here previously, when I was 17, I was in Yeshiva here. Yeshiva Yitri, very religious. And um, on Emek Rafaim, there was a uh, barber, one of these old style barbers. Mm -hmm. And I needed a haircut. So I went in and sat on a chair. And was, I could see one person who seemed to be there before me. So the person in the chair finished, and then it was his go to go. He then went up. It was clear to me that I was next. And I was wrong because, <laughs> you know, at some point just before it was my turn, some guy walks in from the street. And as the other guy gets up, he sits down. And I said, Excuse me, but uh, I don't know if it was in Hebrew or English. I said, but Amit goes, No, 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 I was here an hour ago, but I went out to do some shopping. I've just come back. Now, of course, in England, <laughs> that, that sort of thing 
couldn't possibly be right. because you, you leave you out. forfeit yeah yeah you leave you forfeit it uh i said okay well maybe he was here an hour ago while he's sitting there another guy comes in and sits down and i said to him well, i'm after this guy you're after me and he he was a rough guy and he said mapito what are you talking about i'm next i was here i'm always here i'm a client <laughs> i'm not waiting for you and Again, I'm a little kid. I don't speak the language. And I wasn't in a particular hurry, by the way. And your queuing culture is very, and my very... queuing culture is very different. Very different so I said, yeah. oh, okay, you go next. And eventually, right. after about an hour there, I had my hair cut. And I said to the barber in my faltering Hebrew, which wasn't very good, I said, what is the matter with the people here? And I don't believe... that The first person may have been telling the truth, but even if he was telling the truth, so what if he was here an hour ago? The yeah. second guy was lying barefacedly. I mean, he had no cue. He had no right to be there. He knew that. <laughs> he was just exerting his force and said, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. And the fellow said to me, he said, you should understand, I've been here for two, two generations. He said, when I came here, the concept of a cue was unknown. He said, now at least they lie about it <laughs> and make an excuse. They know there's a concept of a cue, but it's not for them, so they lie. He said, perhaps in another two generations, then actually accept the idea and go with it. Progress. And, and I, I was quite touched by that because I thought, you know, we're just expecting uh, the, the residents of a country or a place to sort of change just like that. But oh. that doesn't happen. Change yeah. happens very slowly as a cultural thing. And he was saying, so now they accept the existence of cues or, as you say, lines, but they find a way around it. He said, but in the... In, in, and I think it's very much similar, by the way, with Ashkenazim as Faradim here. I what mean, do you mean? I mean, there's no doubt there was a very big gap between the Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Maybe discrimination, uh, maybe educationally wise, maybe money wise, maybe government position wise, like lots of things. Are we perfect? No, we're not. But as the country mixes and there's more mixed marriages of Sephardim and Ashkenazim together, right. that whole divide is definitely getting less. And the people who scream that there is still some discrimination, they are probably right. However, that level is so much lower right. than it was two generations right. ago. And I think in the next generation, or maybe two, it just won't be there. And maybe the women as well. You know, so women's stuff. Just, just yesterday, my wife, was she came home from work and... She works in this area with a lot of high-tech companies. She works at a startup. And um, there's this area where they all go downstairs. It's the Serona Market. It's this sort of... Sure, I know it. Yeah, very fancy, um, you know, a place where you can just, like, there's a lot of tents, I suppose. Um, and she was standing in line waiting to order her food. I'm, I'm retelling her story, so maybe I don't get all the details right. But the essence is the same. So she's standing in line, and there's a guy in crutches standing there and then his girlfriend comes um to essentially use his physical state as a wedge to get to the front of the line and she okay. says hang on a second my wife says there's a line here and she the other woman uh she strikes back saying don't you have any heart you know what's wrong essentially what's wrong with you like don't you see that we're uh, but that my boyfriend here is uh, a, a paraplegic or something like this, which is preposterous, right? Like you, you can stand in line. It's not a big, you know, you, you, you shouldn't weaponize someone's physical handicap hmm. to get to the front of the line. Right. Um, 
and then afterwards she she apparently yelled at my my wife that oh she's a Ashkenazi and she's wielding oh. her thing against oh. us and so she was playing the victim yes. twice you know oh. on her boyfriend's part and on herself um but but you know you're right like this stuff this stuff doesn't happen as much as we were told that it used to happen right no and i i also think that many of us have got a bee in a bonnet do you know what that means? No. Oh, it's an English saying. It means a peckle on your shoulder. But you know what a peckle is in Yiddish? It means you, you're carrying something. Mm. You're carrying something culturally or in, in a complex of sorts. Right. We all have something, uh, something that we carry within us. And um, I, when I was more involved in the hotel, this in the American Colony Hotel, which is who I work for because you didn't ask me, so I'm just telling you that. <laughs> we're going to get there uh, unprovoked um, going back for 40 years that they've been here we've always had uh, more or less of Israelis coming at different times and the hotel's always had this um, attitude of speaking English only no Arabic no Hebrew yeah because uh, that's the sort of ethos of the hotel and we're not going to get into all that now but regularly over the years we have out of 6,000, oh, if I say more, say 10,000 Israeli visitors in a year, including 2,000 or 3,000 who sleep over and, oh, more even, 15,000 who eat here. We have five people at random who say they treated me worse because I'm an Israeli. And they give perfect examples why. They say, I heard the waiters talking amongst themselves in Arabic. They were speaking about me mm. or I think they were speaking about me. Or the service to my table was slow because I'm an Israeli. Okay. Now, it took me a long time to figure out. The beginning, I thought, maybe we've got a waiter who really is serving them slow. Right. Maybe there are waiters who are shushing a bit and talking about Israel. And that shouldn't be. But after 40 years and a total change of staff, different staff, many more Israelis, uh, different waiting times because we're now computerized, you realize that one out of a 1,000 people or one out of 200 people has got a preconception before they ever go anywhere. And they think that they're going to be treated worse, discriminated against, whatever it would be. When you go in with that attitude, you will be discriminated in your head. Because something will always happen. And you right. will think that that happened because of your preconception. So the person in the queue for your wife had already, before she'd met your wife, decided that yeah. she was going to be discriminated because he was on a wheel wheeled crutches or because he was fat. Well, then, and then the standard reply just came yeah. out. I'm quite sure she says that five times a day. It yeah. doesn't matter. It happens to everyone. It's incredible how self-destructive that chip on your shoulder can be. Of course it is, but we yeah. all have something. We yeah. all have a chip on our shoulder, or it could be a superiority thing, or whatever it is, yeah. but it shapes our, I think, our replies and our experiences. Yeah. Um, uh, so I actually sort of don't really blame people. I just think to myself... Well, this must be ruining your life to go through your life thinking that people are... I mean, I often feel on when I'm in a... I drive a motorbike most of the time. And when I'm in a car, it's obvious to me that everybody in front of me has only got one goal that day. One goal. And that goal is to stop me going where I'm going. <laughs> I think that 99 out of 100 people are driving aimlessly in the road. Not decide, They're not going anywhere. Because right. there's no other explanation as to why they would break in the middle of the road for absolutely no reason. I always think to myself, maybe they know about an earthquake that's about to happen <laughs> 10 meters in front of them. And I'm thinking, 
is probably not going to happen. So, so if it's not going to happen, the only reason you've stopped is to stop me going where yeah. I'm going. Of course, I have, we all have these mad thoughts. But even self-parody doesn't even that, that doesn't help you remove this this this. No, no. This but silly I, about, I know that I know that I'm crazy. It's okay. different. I know that really they're not. It just gives me a nice explanation for it. I would never actually stop them in the car. And go, excuse me. You know where I'm going, don't you? Tell me which way you're going. I'll go a different way. But I think that a lot of people. A lot of people actually do think that. They do think, right. yes, they're discriminated because. No, they're not. It's just in your head, mister. Get it out of your head. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, so um, we're in the American Colony Hotel, yeah. which is this legendary place that has this incredibly rich history and is uh, self-described as like this oasis, right? We're in, we're in East Jerusalem, right? We're on the border. On the border. I don't like to say it's in East Jerusalem. I think g g Google Maps, um, if you look at Google Maps and Bing Maps, mm -hmm. and I've used this to our advantage for the hotel sometimes, you look at where they drew the borderline. You, you're aware of the meeting between Moshe Dayan and the Jordanian, whoever he was, Abdallah. Tell me. They drew, when they were drawing the line in 1948, it was a thick line with a felt tip. There's a word for it. I can't think what it is. Okay. And they just sort of drew it where they thought was the most... Where the, where the, where the two armies had effectively stopped. And that became no man's land. But it was a very thick felt tip. I'm surprised you don't know this. It's because you're a journalist. But still, never mind. My son's a tour guide. He's, and I've heard it a few times. But never mind. So uh, on that felt tip, mm -hmm. you don't know exactly where no man's land finishes and no man's land started. Now, Google Maps uses the common one which is that the border was well it was actually between road number one if you know it you know road number one mm -hmm, the big mm -hmm, road mm -hmm. and the roundabout where the american colony just outside the hotel okay. all that is no man's land and the reason israel that there were now three israeli hotels right opposite the road here is because that was no man's land so israel said well it's mine i'll take it thank you it belongs to me and then did a mihraz and gave the land to whoever bid for it and they built three hotels there okay but this hotel predates all that this right? pre predates all right. that but the thicker line that bing uses mm -hmm. makes us in no man's land okay so when you look at even today a bing map of the borders of east and west jerusalem we're in no man's land okay which i prefer to it suits the uh, ethos of the American colony to believe that we're not in west or east jerusalem fair enough but man. we're nowhere i would say just uh yeah. In the real world, right, which oh, yeah. is which is where you and I both exist. I was I, um I got off the bus and I was walking my way here and every time I I noticed that it's it, it is full of Arabs, right? They they are yeah. just yeah. on the street you hear only Arabic. Correct. Um maybe that's an ignorant thing to say that this that that then delineates East Jerusalem or not. But um No, I was just I was actually being slightly facetious about it. No, no. No, because you should be from a, from even a more facetious. Marketing point of view. Yes. I would, would be arguing with ExpedientBooking.com and whoever and saying, we're in Jerusalem. Why not in West or East? Mm. That isn't a political statement. Yeah. That's a geographical statement. Right. Look at Bing Maps. And Bing Maps uh, used to, I don't know what it shows today, yeah. used to show we were in neither, which suited me from a marketing point of view. That's, so that's... That I've always sort of told the marketing department, don't get into whether we're in West or East Jerusalem. That's a political statement. Mm -hmm. It will be seen as by somebody. We're in Jerusalem. Okay. 
like it or loved it. So yes, there's no doubt that we are in an area which is mostly Arabic and which 90% of people consider East Jerusalem. Got it. Um, And and when did you, how did you come to join the hotel? Well, I was, uh, came on Aliyah, I was a chartered accountant, which is, you would know as a CPA in, um, in Manchester working for BDO, which was a very nice firm. And my mother had come out on Aliyah to be with my sister who'd come on Aliyah and my other sister would come on Aliyah. I don't believe you. You don't believe me. You have uh, too much personality to be an accountant. Ah, well, now I'm a lousy accountant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer, I think. <laughs> so, uh, I, um, so my mum was actually torn between being in Israel with the two girls or in Manchester with the two boys. Okay. And I felt that wasn't very fair to her. Uh, so that was sort of the reason for me coming to live in Israel. So I came to live in Israel, gave it my job, and thought I'll try it for six months, make my mum happy, and see what happens. Now for those six months from, uh, well, it was March, March till September, I was not working, I was playing tennis every day, weather was nice, and uh, dating different girls, it was all very nice. And uh, and then I, rem- I, I recall specifically being in the tennis centre, looking at my bank statement, which came in the post, mm-hmm. and seeing that I was down to my last $2,000. And it sort of hit me like a truck that I have to start and get a job. How and old six are you? Six months of 26. Okay. Six months of doing nothing, having a great time, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, needs must. So, uh, and within, I started looking for jobs. I actually started a looking after... Um, foreigners houses you know which is today is a big business but then it wasn't mm-hmm. people who only came here three times a year somebody needed to go and clean it before they came somebody needed to pay the bills there was no standing orders in those days yet right the post office and i was actually building a nice little business and there's this there is this artificial moat between those that lived outside of israel absolutely because there were no phones and all that, that was very no hard. internet you needed someone i mean it was very hard to right. do by remote control right right I, I actually had four or five clients rich people and i was earning very well okay uh but it was intellectually singularly unchallenging it Got wasn't it. anything i enjoyed okay and i was playing tennis one day with a guy and the guy next to me was called freddie weiskel who was a very interesting character i'm sure he's not alive anymore and he casually said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm an accountant looking for a job. He said, the American colony is looking for a job. And I said, I've never heard of it, which I'd never heard of it. He said, oh, it's a posh hotel um, in East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm not going to work in East Jerusalem. And he said, do me a favor, Jeremy. Go and have a look and then make your mind up. Meet the people. Okay. Uh, Freddie Weiskel was a jazz pianist and many other... Th- oh, no, he was a jazz saxophonist. In those days, we used to have jazz, live jazz in the bar on Thursday night. And Freddie, together with Naftali and some other... And Liz Magnus, these are all famous people, by the way. You had here in the hotel? Yeah, yeah. I had a threesome. Naftali played and Liz, I don't know who. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, everybody used to come. It was a big deal. Of course, it was a, a, a money loser because we were paying more to them than we could earn from the extra guests coming in. But did that add to the aura of the yeah, hotel? Yeah, it probably did. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we could consider bringing something like that back again. But it's a very, very small bar. Okay. And it was loud. Uh, anyway, there's not, I don't know much about it. I wasn't but, involved and, in it. And when you joined, I guess sometime in the 80s, right? Early 80s? So it was 82 and I met them and I was very impressed with the owner here, Mr. Vesta and his wife. And they said to me, we're... We're way behind. 
we are living on we're living in the past we have an accountant who still uses a book a massive ledger we're not we don't have one computer well the truth is hardly anybody had a computer in those days right it wasn't the time of computers yet but he said we don't speak any hebrew and we realize we have to merge in some way into the hebrew speaking milieu or whatever the yeah. word is environment yeah and but we also want someone british we don't want really somebody too israeli because it'll be the first time and why specifically british because they were british most oh, shelters okay. are british okay. so they said it'd be good for the sh- it'll be good for the uh, looking up to the shareholders it'd be good looking sideways to the general manager who's swiss and it'll be good to the staff that who are used to israelis as being these uh, sergeant major types from the army who stop you at a roadblock and you come across as something very different to them right you're british you know you're like a foreigner right um, a lot of that wasn't said, by the way, but I understood it later that that was what they were looking mm-hmm. for. And I had just got my CPA license, and they offered me a, a very handsome salary and wonderful job conditions. Wow. So um, I thought, I'll try it. You know, I was just on Aliyah. I hadn't really decided if I was staying yet. I hadn't made official Aliyah. I was still a tourist. And uh, I thought, I'll give it a go, which what, is what I did. What a stroke of luck for both for both sides, right? Well, certainly for me, I'm very happy with it. And um, well, no, but you ticked all those boxes. Yeah, I ticked all the boxes, and uh, and I'd like to say that I did, in some ways, revolutionise the hotel because I've always been interested in IT and computers, mm-hmm. and I was pretty adventurous in terms of adopting new technology, even then. So uh, we were the first company to have an Apple IIe, which was the first Apple computer ever, on which I wrote my own Lotus One Two Three program for accounting, which Lotus was before Excel. Oh, wow. And we managed to throw away this big book and replace it with this program, which I wrote. And uh, well, that, that saved an employee to start with. And there was uh, an interesting anecdote is in those days there was an export subsidy on the dollar. The dollar was worth X. And the problem was that what Israel wanted to do was to subsidize exporters. So what they said was, even though the dollar, we're giving you, let's say at the time, four shekels to the dollar, we want to give you five. The problem was export subsidies were not allowed by the European community or the USA. You had to have a free trade agreement. So they couldn't have an export subsidy. Okay. So they called it a foreign currency exchange insurance scheme. Foreign currency exchange insurance scheme. Which meant if the dollar went below five, you pay a premium at the beginning of every year of $100. And anything it is below five on the official rate, we pay you the difference between the official rate and five. Which meant they gave you a 20% subsidy on every dollar you exported. In okay. those days, we were exporting $2 million. Uh, what was it? 50, 20% or 15% was $300,000 a year. That's nothing. Which was more than... No, in those days, that was more than the profit of the hotel in those days. The profit of the hotel was probably 200000 or three hundred. And this gave you a cash ah, gift. okay. Sorry, I thought you, I thought you were talking the, about the entire country. The, okay. No, no. Okay. Just for this hotel. Yeah, yeah. It gave you a okay. cash gift of double your profits mm. or more than your profits. Wow. Now, I, I was reading some stuff from the Israel Hotel Association, which was in Hebrew. And I read it, and I read through the whole scheme. 
And I thought, this isn't an insurance scheme. This is a subsidy scheme. And mm. Labour was okay. And uh, I, I called the manager here, the G GM, and said, why are, why are we not in this? And they said, well, the lawyer, there was an old lawyer, German lawyer, very nice man, but very old. He looked at the paperwork and said, it's insurance, it's a bet, it's a risk, you shouldn't do it. I called the hotel association and I said, am I missing something or is this an export? They said, yeah. you're mad. They said, every hotel in Israel is doing it. <laughs> you're missing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars a year wow. just because of not being a member. So that was the two months after I was here. We enrolled and we managed to get it back for two years. Oh so my the gosh. first year I was here, I earned more for this hotel by just noticing that. Covered my salary for, I don't know. Incredible. Huh? So I was very fortunate in the beginning. So my stock went up dramatically with the hotel and they said, wow, so this guy's here to stay. They, of course, offered me much more money and said, name your conditions, but you've got to stay with us. <laughs> and that was basically when I stayed here and decided, okay, I'm staying in this country. Because economically, I was now doing better than I would have been doing in England. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess relative to your to the cost of living here. Uh, right to the cost of living. And yeah, it was a very good salary. Don't forget, in England, I was in the profession. And the accounting profession, unless you're a partner, and that's still true today, you don't earn very well. Really? It's a bit like legal lawyers as well. Lawyers are a bit more. They're sort of... Uh, managers you can earn something junior partners but in accounting firms which is by the way a very big problem uh, they don't pay enough mm. the partners earn a lot of money and the the subordinates don't and that was the case then as well so in manchester i'd been getting paid but really nothing like what i would have been what i was getting paid in industry here incredible so so was very fortunate it sounds to me the 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 place that you describe is run by I'm talking about the American colony. Yeah. It's run by people who don't really old and don't really mix with the vast majority of the local culture, right? They're missing these obvious opportunities. Well, because when you they say local culture, I mean, they, they mix very well with the Arab culture. Yes. Sorry. But they were basically divorced and cut off from the Israeli right. side of the city. But that's where the, probably the bulk of the economic opportunity lies. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Right. So in other words, their service providers were nearly all, Arabs, there were some of right. them. Right. So, they, so if, for example, today we have a choice of 15 croissant flavors, uh, I'm just making up something. Yeah. Probably in those days they had a choice of two croissant flavors because they were just were not dealing. And it wasn't anything, by the way, political or anti Semitic. There was no language possibility. English wasn't that s so well spoken in mm. 1982 in Israel. Mm -hmm. All the paperwork of writing was in Hebrew. They never understood a word. So when they would get in those days it was snail mail, they get some offers in the mail. They used to send everything to this old lawyer who wouldn't even bother translating what the price of bread was and the different sorts of, they just didn't know. Right. They were cut off and right. the air conditioning, you know, the air conditioner they had in those days was a Worthington, which they directly imported from England because they didn't know the existence of Electra or Tadiran. Uh, the switchboard, everything was imported. So my, I guess my question is, where, where, what I'm what I'm getting yeah. towards is, so you've, you've got these people running the show, but was the American colony even back then when you joined? Did it have this mystique, this aura of you know the place where all these high-level diplomats and politicians from around the world and even artists came? 
to uh, to stay in, in, and, and i think in a different way it was very much the journalist's hotel journalists and very much the diplomat's hotel not so much i think there was a few reasons why number one the location because as i said it was located sort of in neutral no man's land whatever you want to say mm. uh, also the um uh, the fact that there was not a lot of hebrew or arabic around the hotel gave you a feeling of being in a neutral place mm -hmm. everything was in english you go into an israeli hotel and in the arab hotels in those days everything was in arabic so you you just felt a little bit more at home here and and did the hotel look more or less, less oh no no this hotel was uh, was a sorry to say was totally under developed really uh, okay oh yeah so oh, it was yeah. i mean the gardens were nothing like they are today the buildings were in poor shape right the palm house had no elevator. What about that courtyard where everyone eats? Well, the courtyard was there, but there was no shade, for example. Oh, wow. So, okay. so you just got very hot. Got it. And so the, the relative to the rest of the country, it looked more or less the same. I mean, here, no, when, uh, when no. you come in here, as, I mean, the first time I came in here, I was like, what is this place? So this is like a, an island of just yeah, so now, beauty. So, so now the, the, the beauty is, I would venture to say, almost everywhere almost holistic in terms of the buildings and the gardens and the stuff and the uniforms mm -hmm. and the lighting and the pictures and who knows what. In those days, you had a beautiful building, a beautiful natural building with, uh, with, with arches. But the aluminium, well, it wasn't aluminium, I suppose it was wood, was not in good condition. The, some of the window panes were cracked. Oh, uh, There weren't elevators going to everywhere. Okay. Uh, the kitchen was something like out of an army camp everything about the hotel needed modernizing now they had started a few years earlier 1980 when they'd taken swiss management they took swiss management in 1980 so they'd had a year or two but they didn't have a lot of money mm. it was a very very slow process you had to think well what do we do first what do we do next and um it was a four-star hotel in those days and to be honest it was lucky to be a four-star hotel right because if i think about the damp panorama today which is a good four-star hotel in west jerusalem we were miles away from that standard we were well away from the four-star standards of israeli hotels in those days we were at best a three-star hotel with magnificent buildings that right. we always had okay but everything else about the hotel was below par Funny. and it took well, at least 15 years, I'd say, till till mid the mid-90s. I think before you could say we had something to compete with the other hotels. And in that, terms of everything, in terms of, oh, the mattresses and the windows, and you know, soundproofing the windows, soundproofing the doors, the level of food and beverage, the uh, level of housekeeping, computing, efficiency, uh, language skills, training, gardens almost any parking lots it wasn't marked i mean it's a simple thing funny the fact that you have white lines to tell you where to there were no white lines you park where you wanted to and it's also what's interesting is that um i think as far as i can tell or as far as i know that arab culture that they have this um they're known for their hospitality right oh we always had that Right. We, that no, was but, what but, we had. Yeah. But but even I mean to the level of the detail, right? Of of the kinds of like for example, I went to um, Morocco. I mean, I know it's not strictly Arab, but um, just just as emblematic of the region, say, 
let alone Dubai. But um, and when I went to Morocco, you have squalid uh, surroundings, slums essentially, and then you go into these um, yes. riads, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And you come in there and it's just palatial, you know, and the beds are incredible. And, and, and these little things are just hidden all over all the cities that we went yeah, to. Yeah. Um, and people there are serving you. I mean, it, it was it was incredible. Um, and this was, you know, I guess for tourists, this was average, right? Or, you know, this was the mundane. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that back then the standards weren't, weren't really, as you said, right? They were miles behind the other i mean i you know i don't know what's between that 10 years before i came it could even have been yeah significantly worse i don't think that the american economy had a particular name for high quality so why so why did journalists and diplomats stay cheap it was cheap (laughs) it was very cheap okay we had lots of rooms in the palm house which as i said no elevator to get to the third floor yeah um but also it was a i don't think we should um uh, reduce the uh, effect of the fact that it was considered neutral, mm. which meant that the journalist and we had a, always had a good bar. The bar was always a good bar. What made it good? What made it good was the atmosphere down there. The service in the bar has always been better than the service everywhere. Today we're we're equaling the service, I think, in all the outlets. But historically, the bar had some excellent employees. And um, what makes an excellent bar employee? Now I'm like. Explain and next to buy employees yeah. is, is the guest comes in and orders a G&T and wants Hendrix gin with no lemon but lime. And three weeks later comes back and the barman says, do you want the same? Oh. That sort of thing. Whoa. And we were, we are still are, by the way, and that's the sort of stuff that we had in those days as well. Is that a, is that a, a result of training? No, not, it wasn't because it's something that you, you pick the right person. Who can do that wow and uh yeah we were very fortunate so the, the the journalists used to love the bar in those days as well besides the room that was paid for by the newspaper or the channel or whoever it was mm-hmm. they paid the expenses uh, newspapers had very big budgets in those days right so you would come in this was a place don't forget on shabbat you could get the normal food and you could mm. use everything the same as the other hotels. Right. And uh, in, before the politics, actually, the politics started in 85, 86, the first intifada. But actually, before then, the Palestinian issue wasn't such a big issue. Right. So it wasn't like you were getting, on the in the American economy, a Palestinian agenda. You were hearing nothing. Whereas on the Israeli side, presumably, and I don't know, you were probably hearing the Israel side. Mm-hmm. There was no Palestinian side, particularly mm-hmm. before right. then. And then it sort of raised its face. And then, of course, it also became an interesting place because you heard more the Palestinian side, which I suppose they were more interested in, although I don't know. Yeah. And um, so it was a a natural place. But there's no doubt that the money was a big deal because the main reason we've lost a large market share of diplomats and journalists in the last 10 years is money. Right. Because there isn't that money in journalism, as as you know. Right. And... uh, they're not willing to pay it. So if, if United Nations have got a per diem, which means a daily rate of perhaps $250, well, we don't have a room for $250. We just don't. What's the minimum price for? About 350 $350. $320 if you're lucky, off-season right. with a discount. Which is actually not relative to some of the other prices that you can get in, in Jerusalem, but just in general in this country, it's not so much money. 
No, it's not. I'm gonna say that's yeah. the, that's the, but that's the cheapest. Now, once we start giving rooms away for two hundred and twenty, two hundred thirty dollars, and and then you want to include the swimming pool and the Wi-Fi and the room service, it, it's not worth it. There's a swimming pool here. You are joking. No. There's a beautiful swimming pool. Tell me the story. The story about the swimming pool. I'm not sure if there's any great stories, but there are some. Seeing <laughs> as you ask, <laughs> go on. So uh, when I came, there was a. A kidney-shaped pool, if you know what a kidney looks like, like a larger circle and a smaller circle. Yeah. Uh, and a small kid's pool. And you couldn't swim in it. It was like a, it was an odd shape that was looked quite nice, but you couldn't actually lap. And it wasted a lot of space around the sides. Okay. There was rather too much sitting area, not enough pool area. Uh, also, the pool was leaking. The tiles, <laughs> everything was bad when I came. The, oh, God. The, it leaked and the, the tiles were cracked. And uh, it took some time before we replaced it, but eventually we did, and put in a set. It's, it's about a 18 meter long pool, which is just about big enough to swim. We did that perhaps 15 years ago, and um, I think it revolutionised what we could offer in the summer because all of a sudden there was a beautiful area with gardens around it, as opposed to a rather old-fashioned uh, area. Uh, with special tiles that glint in the sun and, and the whole thing became sexy beautiful in the night lit up in the night i mean all these things that take you from being a three-star four-star hotel yeah to a five-star plus hotel uh, we did have an interesting experience with the pool last uh, during corona when the tiles that we put in 13 14 years ago started cracking and cutting people's feet it wasn't a serious problem, but it was getting worse. And the problem was it was July. We couldn't close the pool to fix it for four months in the middle of July. It would have meant effectively bankrupting the hotel just when we lost the money in Corona. Oh, okay. So we had to temporarily put mats down at the bottom of the pool, like bath mats, <laughs> you know, like rubber stuff, and keep checking that they were covering the cracks because if any high-profile guest were to cut themselves, on that we would have a serious lawsuit right because we knew about it how do you check if the mats are just someone just diving yeah, in there yeah well you can see it's not very deep okay. so the the you know we would have a check twice a day to to realign the mats and put it over the cracks uh it was a hair-raising time because actually bar Raffaelli came to the hotel and which was uh, a, a lovely lady by the way and she came on a it was either thursday afternoon or friday i don't remember but I was saying, my wife, as I went home, said to me, have you considered what would happen if something happened to Bar Raffaele's feet when she was in the pool? She sent her mom to jail, man. Uh, she's ruthless. Well, maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not talking about anyone. But she was, um, it, it really made me think. And I came flying back to the hotel. I said, put in more mats. I mean, I don't care what they look like at this point. Yeah. But we have to protect ourselves. And, yeah. and we had a sign outside saying, be careful. And from the minute we did that, we were okay till October when we closed the pool and fixed it. But, you know, you have hairy times in a hotel. I mean, what can you do? Wow. So I, I actually never really considered it from your point of view. Well, why would I? But um, with the level of people that come and stay here and patronize this hotel, any small issue with the hotel can potentially be a real pain in the ass oh, for you guys. I, I can't. Um, what I'm about to tell you is subjudice in terms of legal, but I can tell you we had a very high-profile fellow uh, guest two, three months ago who had an accident in the hotel, 
uh, he's very high profile and there may be there may be uh, some sort of repercussions from it and yes it can happen there was no way we could have in my opinion prevented it we'll see what happens with it but yeah that is the um, and that's also a change by the way if you go back to 1982 Yes, we had journalists and diplomats, but it wasn't the sort of high-quality hotel that attracted your very wealthy people. We were nowhere near the King David or what is today the Waldorf, the Citadel, all those hotels. We were, well, I, I don't want to mention other hotels, but we were at best a three- or four-star hotel. Yeah. So, yes, we got artists. We got a lot, back, a lot of backpackers, a lot of archaeologists, people on low budgets. That was the clientele of the, uh, of the hotel at the time. Yeah. And it's been a very slow but inexorable, if you like, uh, uh, renovation project, which we're still doing and we'll have to continue to do, to keep upping that standard. One of the questions that the owners asked themselves and the management company, do we want to just get better and better and better and become so exclusive that the ordinary person can't afford to come here? And that's a discussion that directors have. Some of them would prefer that we didn't invest so much money, not because they don't invest the money, but because they'd like the place to be accessible to all, so that we should keep some cheaper rooms. Mm. But it's very problematic uh, management-wise. If you have some very small and not very nice rooms, and you get very busy, and that's all that's left, and then you get this person who's heard all about the American colony, the famous quality, and they get one of these very average rooms mm. then they start writing nasty things about you and then i suppose they're right because it's not what they expected right so on the one hand you want to keep the hotel open you know you, you can't have a mercedes for five thousand dollars it's just not going to work the technology that goes into it you can't buy for five thousand right and mercedes doesn't want to be that brand they right. want to be the top brand so th that's a an ongoing discussion right um, and we recently pulled out of Leading Hotels of the World, which is a pre the, probably the premium brand, and went into something called Small Luxury Hotels, which is also a very, very good brand, but probably just one notch under Leading. And one of the principles behind it was that we're not sure we want to be a Leading Hotel. It just makes... It's the sort of hotel where you expect a personal butler and you expect room service 24-7. Yeah. And you expect a massive menu on the room service thing. And it's all very nice if you can charge $700 a night. But if you're charging $400 a night, you just can't afford it. Yeah. So you have but, to make that decision. But um, beyond the, beyond the, just how beautiful the, the place is. I, I yeah. haven't ever stayed here, so I don't know what, okay. what the rooms look like. But, you know, the courtyard is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah, this whole place screams of history and and um, what um, importance, I suppose. Um, and part of the fun or the excitement of coming here is like thinking to yourself, "Well, I don't know who I'm going to see," because yeah, that is yeah, true, yeah, right? Yeah, and the yeah. thing is, I never know who I'm going to see because all these sort of foreign European types or God knows who what. I have no idea who these but, people are, but they all have some fancy, but, fancy but title. I think there's a bit of a misconception. If I would take uh, an average day in the American colony. But just, just, yeah, just sure. for the listener, I mean, tell uh, just a list of 10 people that everyone would know that has stayed here off uh, the top of your head. Bob Dylan, uh, Natalie Portman, 
Bar Raffaelli, um, Giorgio Armani. Tony Blair worked out. Tony Blair all the time. Um, trying to think of people would know. Um, what's his face? Richard Gere. Um, Graham Greene, if you're familiar with him. Uh, writer, right? Writer, yeah. yeah. Uh, John Le Carre. Or, I mean, artists. Right. Uh, so people yeah. at the top of the top of the oh, most the elite top, professions in the world. Absolutely. Politicians, absolutely. actors. But it's more of the artist sorts than just rich people. In other words, we're not really the hotel if you've just got a lot of money. If you want to be seen, you shouldn't really come to the Americana. Go to the King David, go to the Waldorf, you'll be seen. Uh, people will put, talk about it in the paper. The King David will put it in their magazine. They're ah. very proud about it, and okay. then, which is fine because that's okay. what they're about. Mm. We're not about that. So we, we will often have people come. Sting, for example, when he came, he... he Sting? Sting, yeah. And other people, they didn't want anyone to know. And as they come and uh, right. in names which you know we know, but nobody else knows, and we try and hide it because that's what they want. They just want to have a stay in a in a discreet place without people following them, without anybody, and that's the nature of the hotel. How does Sting stay at a hotel, any hotel, and not be recognized? <laughs> but probably he was recognized. Okay, <laughs> but the point is he he. With, with, I he didn't want anyone announcing. Some of the celebrities who stay here specifically don't want. We we often get a reservation for someone uh, with a false name, and the agent will say, "Look, it's, we're not telling you who it is. Okay, it's not your business. You'll find out when they come, because oh. that way no one can know who it is. Right now, you shouldn't think. By the way, this is a major part of our business because it isn't. It's a small part of the business. I, I would say, and that's what I was going to say before about misconception is that people tend to think that the day-to-day -day life here is in, of, of the guests is in some way glorious or, or um, exciting. Yeah. It is. 95% of our guests are anonymous people, not super rich, not super poor, not pilgrims, uh, not geographical trekkers, just people who want to have a holiday. And, of course, they all have a particular liking, uh, summer foodies and... Some might be like archaeology, but they're not pure archaeologists. They're not pure food. They're just people. Yeah. And then every day you have two people, five people who are coming to eat or coming to stay who are in some way exceptional. Right. But that is not the, uh, the profile uh, of, of our guest. Our guest is just what we call an FIT, a free independent traveler or tourist who's just coming to see Israel and wants a hotel, I think... I mean, why exactly they choose the American colony will depend on the person. But for sure, it'll be because it's got the highest quality rating on the various review sites like mm. TripAdvisor, um, because it's very beautiful and you see that in pictures. Yes. And probably because we're a member of small luxury hotels, because uh, because it's small, people like that sort of boutique -y thing. But I don't think it's because it's famous Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, it's not one thing. That's what I'm saying. Right. I don't think people... If you're going to the King David, probably you're going to be seen. It's the hotel. It's also it's also very gaudy, right? Like, it's on the floor. You see these... Yeah, but that, that's... that's Those are the people who want it. And, you know, everybody appeals to a certain yeah. population, a market. Right. Uh, and if you take the Leonardo Plaza or the Waldorf, they're going for a religious clientele. They're, they're specific... Mm. I think we're not going for anything specific. We're going for a guy who wants to have a good time. Um, 
in, in a quiet place with good service and just relax which is not i think what the other hotels are about they're, they're, their advertising campaigns are very boisterous and very loud and they've got music in the lounge and all sorts of things that we're far away from that it's Funny. for the quieter i think more refined person that's what i'd like to think more educated it might sound snobby but um, it does <laughs> yeah okay so maybe it does sound snobby but no i, I i'm joking but um yeah, but, but there is there is something to it i mean if i were going to um a hotel in in i don't know vienna and there was a hotel which was quintessentially viennese mm -hmm. with the architecture of the building with perhaps the music coming out of it with the staff being local viennese people not imports from croatia or wherever people get from and I could feel that by staying there, I was sort of imbibing the local culture. Mm. That's another thing that we do very well. Not We don't have to try that hard. I mean, it's what we are. The buildings are originally Jerusalem. The gardens have only got local plants in them, as I think I told you, or maybe I didn't. But we only plant what was indigenous to the Middle East 100 years ago. We don't plant anything else. Mm -hmm. All the thing is, there's also a word that I think is authentic. There's yeah, there's something authentic about the American economy, uh, and that's an argument I have with the, the chairman actually, because I think we can get away with almost Disneyfying authentic stuff. What does that mean? I mean, it wouldn't worry me to have uh, the smells of East Jerusalem, the the spices, uh, rather than lavender, which is sort of British and international. No, we could have a gar well, I don't know what a local zatar. We could, and the menus could be much more Arabic, mm. and the um, the waiters' uniforms could be mm -hmm. more Jerusalem style. Because I think that when uh, certain hotels nearby have got, for example, a thousand-year olive tree, you know, which I know is n nothing like a thousand years and was <laughs> never there, because I remember the land before the hotel was built. There was no olive tree. There. Wow. And you know, when is, there's a sign there saying, this olive tree has been here since the days of Abraham. And I know that it wasn't there 10, 20 years ago, but okay, they, that's their theme. And I'm saying, we can afford to get away with that because we're genuine. We're the real thing. Right. So we can make a bigger stink about it if we want and get away with it because without lying. But the owners are very conservative and they say, leave it. We have a grave here, a Christian grave in the car park. One grave? One grave. Who's, who's? So no one knows who. Okay. I would mark it very prominently and say, this is a Christian grave. It could possibly be, well, it could possibly be anyone, but I might put up two or three possibilities. Jesus. Uh, let's say. Okay. Because uh, it's perfectly possible. By you way. might be flooded with tourists afterwards well, i don't think i'd say jesus but perhaps one of the apostles <laughs> but i'm not saying it is i'm also not saying <laughs> right, it isn't. Right, right, but right. if it was an israeli hotel you could be quite sure they'd have a big sign there <laughs> with a light at night and a zarkur going look at what we've got and we just say well we don't know who it is so we better not say anything <laughs> okay that's the way the american colony is and you know that's the beauty about this place that everything's very low-key you like telling the truth yes okay. that's the authentic not bad so so so, so <laughs> when we say we use some herbs from the East House Garden to cook in. We really do. Yeah. Doesn't mean all the herbs are, but we really do. Yeah. And so there's other hotels, you know, where you hear that the all the vegetables and the fruit is grown in house. Well, don't believe that because there's no way you can 
serve fruit and vegetables to all your guests from, from in-house unless mm. you had massive fields somewhere. Uh, but, but they'll tell you that. So you're eating it and you'll probably say to one, oh, you can taste this as organic lettuce, except it isn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wouldn't lie, but I'd just yeah. say, well, what we do, I think we should push a little bit harder. I'm more the... I, I also like the, the insistence on being somewhat neutral in you know the, the politics that goes on here. Um, I mean, you, I think yeah, you told me that story with about um, was it Ehud Olmert that you had an event and he was the mayor of Jerusalem and you you had had a Palestinian counterpart to come to the event, right? So you you had to have a representative of both the Israelis and the Palestinians at, at, at any event that and goes. We on. still try and do that as right. much as we can. It doesn't always work, but that's not our choice. Right. Our choice is to never be seen to be on one side of any politics, religion, any right. controversy. We just want to be out of it. In fact, they were called the overcomers when the American economy originally came here in 1880. They made a point of being different. They weren't trying to be on the Arab side, the Jewish side, the Turkish side, the British side, uh, the Jordanian side. They, they were just the Americans. Look at the name of it. The American colony. Mm -hmm. It's a colony. It's an enclave within a foreign country, whichever country that is, mm -hmm. which, um, which is something else. And I think that that's what we, we try still very hard. That's why, as I think I told you, we have a Swiss manager. Switzerland is seen to be neutral. It doesn't get involved in wars. I'm not discussing the, the goodness or badness for Switzerland, the Second World War or the Iranian thing now and, and lots of other things that Switzerland yeah. may or may not do. But certainly it tries to be above it. It tries to say, look, we're Swiss. We don't get involved in this. Right. So we have a Swiss manager. In other words, Swiss manager... American, British owners, Swedish owners, nothing to do with the local. Well, uh, I, I love a story, by the way, of uh, Mrs. Vester, who was like my grandmother in a way. She was the husband, uh, the wife of the person who employed me. A most delightful and special woman uh, with a wonderful sense of humor. She was interviewed once by a journalist here at the time of Israeli elections. And uh, he said to her, so tell me in the time of these elections, um, who do you think you would vote for? And she said, well, obviously the Labour Party. I've been Labour all my life. But she meant Labour in the UK. Mm. In other words, her mindset was not about, I don't care about these elections, nothing to do with me. It doesn't matter to me if it's right-wing, left-wing or Chinese government. Here. Right. What In my mindset, when you ask me who I'm voting for, I'm British. And I think that's very much the, the, the neutrality that you, you mentioned is... Um, it's a very important part of who we are. And uh, we're encouraged all the time to try and make sure that that continues. Well, it's also what, what I, I like about it. What I really like about it is that uh, on the point of authenticity um, yeah. is that, um, you know, people that live in this country don't spend their time thinking about the conflict all day, every day. It obviously it, it, it flares up it's there and but um you know it's it's it resembles normal life here um well you were talking about Eod Olmert I mean and, and I told you that's what he said when he came when he spoke at this event it was when we accepted into either leading hotels of the world or Relais Chateau I don't remember but yeah when he was mayor and he started his speech by saying uh you know when I come into the American Colony Hotel, I leave my politics and my views and opinions about anything and everything outside on the road. 
and I come into a place of tranquility and neutrality yeah. with no opinions. And it was such a wonderful thing to say. And, you know, I mean, yeah. you talk about an oasis. So it's not just an oasis, if you like. I started talking about geographically, it's sort of nowhere. And, but, but also from a family point of view, it's not owned by a chain, it's owned by the family. It's not, it's not owned by a religion. It's a, yeah, they were Christians, but today the, the owners are Christian in name, but not, they're not sort of faithful like the old guys were. They're not waiting for Jesus to come anymore. Mm -hmm. So there is, it's sort of out of the ordinary in almost any field that you look at. Yeah. It doesn't belong to any culture or belong to any geography or any religion or that's what I think makes it very neutral. So who are the people that own the hotel? So the hotel, that the people that own it are all the descendants of the founders from Sweden and America who came here in 1880. And these are how many families? Well, then there were basically two um, American families. Oh, actually one, the Spaffords, which then married into something called the Vestas and the Whitings, but it all started as one family, the Spaffords. But then there was a Swedish village, a load of Swedish people who came from the village of Norse, N-A-S. They were two or three families, Larsons, Matsons, and whatever. And today, all the, the, all the owners are descendants of either one of the three Swedish families or the one American family. However, they live something like 10% in America, uh, 60% uh, UK, 20% Sweden. I'm already up to 100, but there's, there's one guy in France, one guy in Australia, uh, who are also descendants and none of them live here none of them live here no funny um, and uh, how, how is that i mean if they if they all came here founded this place all their descendants end up leaving well obviously there's a, a long history but uh, yeah. in 1930-ish there was a big split between the swedes and the americans and um <clears throat> basically the swedes got out there were assets <clears throat> excuse me there were assets of the hotel all over Israel and Palestine and the Swedes got most of everything except this building which and the cemetery which were retained by the Americans the Swedes over the next few years sold up what they had and decided this had been probably not the best idea and went back to Sweden or wherever they went to um, and the Americans went left by and large and went to live in uh, in Britain hmm. Some went back to America and some went to Britain. Um, and then between 1935 and 1967, roughly speaking, you could say this was just a backwater. It was originally Palestine and then, uh, and then um, Jordan. And it wasn't really a hotel till, till early 60s. Oh. And it was suffering. I mean, this this place was living on charity. It would, the the original commune had disbanded the photographic exhibition, uh, photographic department, which was very successful. Car importers, tourists, uh, they were partners with Thomas Cook. Uh, Who is that? Tom, Tom you never heard of Thomas Cook? Oh gosh, sorry, sorry. They're British, I think, or they may have been American. I don't know, but they were one of the biggest travel op tour operators in the world by miles okay and uh had their own planes and everything they actually went bankrupt about five years ago but they were very very big 
uh, we were their representatives as i said we imported cars and and um and farming and all sorts of stuff lace making you can see opposite me there's a lace there yeah and all sorts of stuff that they did and schools teaching music oh gosh painting it was all great and then it all stopped in 1935 and effectively was the building so they let out some rooms b and b if you like and it's just enough to keep it going but had to sell off some land so we sold off land at one corner here which we since then have been trying to somehow get back either lease it back or okay whatever and um and then in around 1970 uh this Horatio Vesta who was the grandson of the founder he came back to save the hotel effectively because the assets were being sold the land was being sold the hotel was going nowhere wow uh in 67 they'd been in the middle of a of an expansion which is actually where we're sitting here under the Jordanian they started in 65 then the war came and then the contractor couldn't finish and the thing was sitting here sort of half finished mm. and he finished it off and realized at a later stage he needed professional management but from 1970 to 1980 tourists started to come back to Israel after 67 right and it started he then then there was actually some positive cash flow so he turned it around but he had come from England his children lived in England his all his brothers and sisters lived in England so and there were six of them I think they'd all gone back there uh, so there was no one to stay here so Horatio who was this old guy who was 80 when he employed me or 82 and his wife who was a couple of years younger they employed me in 1982 so you can work it out she was maybe 78 I don't know exactly how old Wow! and uh, that was it there was no one here so no there was no owners here and but Mrs. Vesta that's uh, Horatio's wife she lived here from well, from 1970 till she died in 2008 2006 she was very old she was 97 when she died okay so she was the owner's rep if you like when she was here but she knew about gardens a very intelligent woman she didn't know much about business she didn't know much about money she certainly knew nothing about uh, running a hotel I mean she didn't pretend to mm-hmm um, so uh, it was a bit on remote control they were relying on the Swiss management and that's why they got in the Swiss consulting company with Swiss managers because they realized that they couldn't do it by themselves anymore it's incredible how this hotel bears very little resemblance to the uh, intentions of the people that founded this place 140 years ago that is amazing and there's a there's a lovely quote which Val Valentine Vest used to use which is that uh, the American colony founders came here to do good and ended up doing well. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very nice quote. Uh, but having said that, uh, I, I don't think it's absolutely true because I think that they still intend to do good. Sure. No, no, for sure. I mean, for I can sure. tell you so many stories about even in Corona recently uh, when other hotels were putting people on uh, on furlough, what's it called? on You know, unemployment. Yeah. yeah. So we had 25 West Bankers who were not being paid by the Palestinian Authority. And the, the question was in one of the first Zooms I had in March or April, what are we going to do with the West Bankers? And to me, the question was, I didn't quite understand the question. What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do? Pay them every month for the next year, 10 years, until we go bankrupt. It wasn't two people. And um, I said, well, 
They said, well, we have responsibility. There are our employees. We have to pay them. I said, well, okay, but if we pay them, you know, we're, we're burning money at the moment to X, I don't know how much it was, $30,000, $40,000 a month. So we've got 10 months or 12 months to survive. We didn't know about government grants in those days. They hadn't announced them. Mm-hmm. But if we start paying these wages as well, we won't last 10 months. We'll last six months. Mm-hmm. And then you'll be bust. You want to pay them? Let's have another Zoom meeting in two weeks, Jeremy. Do the calculations as to when we'll go bankrupt if we pay them when we don't. Wow. As much as you can. And the instruction I got back was that you pay them 70% of their wage for as long as you can. Find any job you can do. Let them do the gardens. Let them do some maintenance work. I said, you do realize that you are accelerating the end. You must remember that the mindset at the beginning of Corona, there was no vaccine. Right. And there was a closure. And you didn't know when Taurus would be allowed in the country again. Right. It made a massive difference if you could keep going for a year or for eight months. Right. That's the difference between going bankrupt and keeping going. Right. But for them, it wasn't even a question. You have to look after your employees. So when you when people say, you know, values to say they came to do well, no, they didn't. They're still here to do good. I have many more examples. That's of, incredible. Of how we, we've looked after our employees. I can tell you that I unfortunately had the the difficult task of firing 45 people uh, during those first few months of Corona. I had one employee out of the 45, one, who said, I'm upset, I'm annoyed, I don't know why me, all this business. 44 said it's been an honor to work here. I understand why you're doing it. I have no resentment. Please remember me and try and find me when you can. And I love this place. <laughs> how, many, how many places of work around the world or employers can sack 40 people and have that sort of... I used to come out of each meeting crying because I thought I'd be the nasty one. I wasn't... I, I mean, it, it was... They made... They humbled me Yeah. because I thought of the way they took it. But there's a reason that happens. That's incredible. That's because the owners here... We have an ethos, and you know, I fit that ethos, I think, of doing good, not doing well. I mean, you were here just five minutes ago. A guy called me. I told you. Yeah. He wants a 9,000 shekel loan. You think other hotels give a 9,000 shekel loan to an employee? Right, right, right. Because his son's getting married. You think they'd even consider it? Right. So go to Miftachim, go to the bank, go to someone. We will consider it. If he's a good employee, we'll say, okay, you know what? We'll give you 7,000. Because it's for sure, yeah. you know, this is the local mentality. If you ask for nine, you don't expect to get nine. So <laughs> we could piss around going, I'll give you one, and he'll go eight, and I'll go two, and I'll go that. But you can cut through the crap and say, we'll give you six. Uh, and then he will say, I want to pay it at 500 shekels a month for the next 10 years. And you'll go, no, no, no. It's 1,000 shekels a month, six months. Yeah. Now, what's the cost to us? We're sitting on plenty of money in the bank. So there is a cost because the, the, the next guy might come and ask. So you've got to take each case and say, mm-hmm. is this a good employee? Do we want to help him? And, and not because of just the money. Think about how hard it is for an Arab who doesn't speak Hebrew to go to a bank who probably only speaks Hebrew, fill in a load of forms, uh, then pay the interest, which maybe he thinks he's not allowed because he's a religious Muslim. Uh, or... Maybe he's using that as an excuse. But there's a whole, I mean, even you and me, we know what it's like to do that. How many forms you don't understand what you're doing. Right. And as opposed to that, you can just do someone a favor. So we have 
afloat in this hotel of X hundred thousand shekel that we're allowed to lend to employees. Wow. It mustn't go over that. We don't charge them interest and they have to all pay it back. Well, what's interest these days anyway? Uh, now it's fine. Now it's high. Higher. If you go back the last 20 years, it wasn't significant. Okay. And what would we do with that money? We'd leave it in the bank anyway. And what risk were we taking? A small risk. Yeah. Yes. Twice in 40 years, some employee has left and he's owed us 2,000 shares. But I, I'm, I'm still uh, amazed by that story that you said in Corona. And they said, just keep paying. Yeah. Even if it was 70% of their Yeah. That was risking. And, and, and we then had to, I employed a security guard. I had two West Bankers. I had two on maintenance. One in housekeeping. All five from West Bankers. Uh, and all the Israelis were, of course, on uh, Khalat. And there was only West Bankers working here. That was a decision, you know, as much as possible. But it, it underscores the point that you were trying to make not doing well, but doing good because what's at risk is not just a hotel closing or staying open. It's it's this incredibly rich tradition and history well, coming to an I, end I, over I, these I'm individuals. I'm not absolutely you know? sure that it, you know, I mean, I'm being a bit fatalistic to say it would have gone bankrupt because, I mean, the land was still worth an awful lot of money and it's not mortgage particularly so i don't think that we would have necessarily lost the hotel but it would have meant that the recovery afterwards would have been much more difficult there were a lot more uh, uh, problems with it that you were retaining those employees and perhaps firing some uh, israeli id holders and then that might have been a legal issue as well so there were a lot of issues with doing but, this but, but if you let's say you um take out a loan to then keep the operations running you've yeah. now invited a bank to have a say in the matters of the hotel i don't as you said if absolutely if, right absolutely. and banks for good reason don't have this sort of all-embracing don't worry we're going to be absolutely okay absolutely correct right they say you missed a payment well yeah. <laughs> we well, want our money back so in right? other words I, I don't think that existentially the hotel might have lot been lost i don't think they were that they're not heads in the sand like that mm -hmm. but we're certainly going to make life much more difficult in the future i mean ju just purely from the point of view if you go along to a bank and you need the loan and they say to you or well, show me your cash flow for the next six months and you show them that you're paying you know 20 people five thousand shekels each and they say to you what do you mean you're paying a hundred thousand shekel that you don't need to and they're sitting at home they would laugh at you they mm -hmm. wouldn't even give you the loan they say, well, sorry, we're lending to businesses who are businessmen, not to people who are charitable. Right. And, but, but we never got to that stage, thankfully. But right. my, my, my point of bringing it is to say that the, uh, the ethos of this hotel is not about making money. It's also about making money. But it's really more about survival, uh, improving the asset, and if possible, paying dividends. Of course, that's Im important. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, not not as the main thing i mean the things we do now for the environment i mean the money we spend on it we're going back into this now into a whole ecological uh, uh process of recycling water of uh, energy saving and, and all this is not a particularly good investment in terms of money why not why not because the cost of recycling water in israel and of processing it buying the machinery getting the testing done by the Ministry of Health every month is far more expensive than the amount you save by buying water. Oh. Yes. But they want to do it. So um, I've actually been... Five minutes. Yep. Yeah. I've actually been investigating uh, this. We're still trying to do it. It's very complicated. But 
the, the, the board are well aware that from a financial point of view, it's a bad thing to do. But finance isn't the only thing that motivates us here. So you have other things. So, okay, last question, because you got to go. Um, yeah. When we first met, you and I, and yeah. Guy, right? That's his name. Guy or Guy? Was Guy, Guy here last, last time you came? Or yeah, no, the first time I came. Okay. Um, that was right when the country was opening back up after Corona. Okay. And I asked you, because, you know, again, so many high-profile diplomats and journalists and were coming to stay here throughout the years um, to cover the conflict, to cover the wars, all that stuff to negotiate uh, during the peace process, peace processes. Um, but all that, as you said, the, the budgets for news organizations were steadily declining. Same with um, the diplomats. I mean, under the Trump administration, they were just cutting, 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 yeah. right? Has any of that changed? And I guess the follow-up question would be, how does the hotel look at that as it pertains to its business in going forward um i don't think it'll ever be what it was i think that uh because not just trump but the european union and all governments have slashed what diplomats used to get israel has as well foreign office um they just don't see it as that important so the per diem is not going to go up very much and it's not even just them it's the world bank and all sorts of international organizations who've realized that you don't need to pay people $500 a night in expenses to go to locations which are very nice. If they, they, they give them a per diem of 200 250 and if you want to stay in a five-star hotel, you pay another 200 bucks. They're, they're getting paid. I think that's a change, and I'm, I can't imagine that's going to come back in a hurry. Hmm. Um, and that's the same with newspapers as well. Uh, fueled in both cases by the change of economics of news organizations and governments. Governments never mind why, have less money to spend now. And as you know, uh, news uh, journalism is not money-making anymore. It's advertising on the Internet. And uh, that's it. So they've, they've cut budgets. So we still get journalists. We are still the go-to place for both. Mm -hmm. But there's just not that many coming. Right. Which means that a, a journalist today, let's say you're interviewing me now with a video camera, with a recording thing, and presumably you may edit this or not edit this, and that's it, it's one person. So in the old days, BBC would send six people here. Right. Cameraman, assistant, cameraman, sound guy, assistant, sound guy, right, content, right, right, right. lighting, and they'd all stay here. Well, that's very nice. But so, so it's not the journalists don't come. Second of all, when they used to come, they'd come two weeks before the elections, the three days of the elections, and for two weeks afterwards to analyze the elections. Because... <laughs> It was a junkie for everyone. Everyone was happy. Because in those days, you used to make... The world was a slower place. So an election in Israel could be on the newspapers for a week or two weeks. Today, Incredible. the biggest story in the world lasts how long? Right. Two days? Right. Not even, yeah. Not even. Ukraine, yeah. does anybody know what happened? If there's a massive train crash in India, which there was right. yesterday, we right. 500 people. We've already forgotten, yeah. Yeah, not in today's paper. Right. So today, the length of stay of a journalist, an election, he flies in the day before. You can check everything you want on the internet in England before you come out here. You know all the information before you come. You set up the interviews in advance. You could probably do them all on Zoom. You don't actually have to come here. That's the truth. You don't need to come here with right. technology. Right. You do come here because you want to have one person on the ground with a Knesset in the background or 
something showing the picture of the demonstrations behind you and by the way that footage could easily be shared among 10 news channels which is what they do anyway right so one person comes he's here for one night has an interview with with the winning politician who's happy to be interviewed and goes back home and what did we make out of it we made 350 dollars for that night what did it cost them 350 right the same thing 25 years ago was ten thousand dollars Wow. Of course it was. Wow. It was five people for two weeks. Wow. To say nothing of the fact that they used to use the phone. And for the phone, international phone call, we used to charge $3 a minute. What? Which used to, yes, in every hotel, which used to cost us 20 cents a minute or 30 cents a minute. Wow. Imagine a guy filing his report on the phone and he's talking and talking and talking. And he's not just talking when he's doing the reporting, he's talking to his news editor, sure. to the, the can what do you think of the picture we know i don't like it can you change it right the phone bill alone of a journalist would have been a thousand dollars in those days incredible Easily. incredible but that's that's not coming back so in terms of what we're doing for the future yes we still want those markets the markets have shrunk dramatically sure the, the market that is available still comes it's a very small one uh we used to spend a fortune on we had the first reuters machine the first cnn dish the first uh, internet we were almost the first, all because fueled by the journalist income. But today when somebody asks me, you know, journalists want, uh, for the sake of argument, upload of Wi-Fi of 1,000 MPS or whatever it is, I go, no, it's not worth it. Who's going to come? Let them not come. I'm not going to spend right, $1,000 right, right. a month right. to get a, a DSL instead of an ADSL or what the other thing is, the fiber, just because one journalist might come every three months and might want that. If you really want it, I'll get in for that. It's incredible. Right? It's really... So, the, so it's totally, totally changed. The business has changed. Yeah. And there's no archaeologists because they can't afford it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the, 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 the marketing has changed. And so we're building the hotel differently so that the swimming pool is bigger because there's more leisure. So you need to... It's not just a jump in the pool and get out. It's two, three days of tourists staying here. A journalist would be out all day, wouldn't use the pool, so who cares? But these guests are staying in all day. Yeah. So the car park needs to be bigger. All, all these so changes. I, this is seriously the last question. So yeah. when you when you advertise for a guest, the ideal guest is someone that's into something low-key, high-quality, uh, interested in the history or, or not so much? Or so attracted by it? Yeah, or? I think uh, if you say the ideal guest, I mean, when you advertise I, I would i would be horrible to say anybody who pays the bill is what you're looking for uh yeah i'd, I'd like to think that the, the slightly more refined person who isn't looking for the loud music and isn't looking for every buck for his money and say well was this good value for money it's not only about value for money there's something ethereal about stuff that is harder to value so somebody who values the fact that you have in the east house a herb garden with a chair with goldfish and the water dripping slowly and you read a book there now what's it worth well you want to value it you can't value it yeah there's no value it's just something that is is um above a, a pounds dollar what do you say pounds dollars and cents valuation yeah something that you can't value so somebody wants you know value per money well maybe the ibis hotel in central town gives you better value for money maybe yeah. it does yeah yeah but I think if you want someone who's not just looking for the bucks for your, was it pound for buck, bucks for? Bang for your buck. Bang for your bucks. Mm -hmm. That's not us. I think it's someone who who is a bit more discerning. Somebody, as you said, who may appreciate the gardens, may appreciate the architecture, may appreciate the history, may appreciate the neutrality. And yeah, 
they'll have a really good time here. I just I love that um, at the bar when someone remembers the drink that you had three weeks prior. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a uh, that's a feeling of I belong here, or or they this is a yeah. Sort you of, know, it's a va- it's a feeling of we value you. Yeah, exactly. In other words, you right. are a friend. You're not just a number. You're not just a resource. Right. I had a, actually a, a phone call with someone recently uh, about a particular brand, not in Israel, whether they should align together. And I said, I don't think so. I said, because the owner of the hotel you're talking about is money. He just wants money. He's not, he's not guest-centric. Mm-hmm. He's money-centric. Yeah. And your brand is guest-centric. Mm. You care about it. I said, I just don't see how the two meet. There will be some points where you can agree because you both want to make some money. But in the long term, I don't see it working. Right. We are very guest-centric and we're very neutral-centric. So, yeah, that's my answer. Let's end on that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. My pleasure. i got to run.